This is American Resistance, a mini-series highlighting the people and stories from David Rothkoff's latest book, American Resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation. Hello, and welcome to another in our special series called American Resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation, which is talking to folks who inspired the book that I wrote and who I turned to during the course of the book and who have perspectives on the core issues of the book. And I think no one can uh, represent all of these different kinds of roles quite as well as Ambassador William B. Taylor. Bill Taylor is known to many of you because in 2019, he served as the charge d'affaires at the U.S. Embassy in Kiev. Uh, He had a distinguished diplomatic career before that, including having served as ambassador to Ukraine from 2006 to 2009, held a number of very sensitive roles throughout the greater Middle East, a lot of experience dealing with issues of Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, served on Bill Bradley's staff, was a uh, distinguished military officer, and we're real glad to have you joining us. Hi, Bill. Hello, David. Thank you. Very, very kind. Very kind. The role you play in this story has to do with Ukraine and replacing Ambassador Masha Ivanovich after she was unceremoniously, and I, I think it's fair to say unfairly, pushed out of her office. And you were persuaded to come back in on certain kinds of terms, which you can explore. And and fairly early on, you discovered that this was not the U.S. government operating as you had known it to operate throughout your career. Yeah, so even, even before I was approached to uh, go back out and, as you say, replace Masha Ivanovich, uh, who had been a great ambassador, was doing a great job in Kiev, uh, representing the United States, following U.S. policy very clearly. And, and even before there was any indication that she'd be coming back, there was some sense that all was not right. That all that there was something else going on there. Uh, I'd had a couple of conversations with her when I visited Kiev um, in the in the spring, uh, earlier in the in the spring of 2019, and then uh, you know there were some news reports about uh, Rudy Giuliani um, that were uh, he was involved somehow, um, and it, so you know my antenna should have been higher. I will tell you, David, I should have I should have heard a little bit more. But then, exactly as you say, Ambassador Ivanovich was pulled out for no good reason. And, and indeed, the embassy that she served, the embassy that she led, was given no explanation for this. So it, it was really unsettling for the Americans, but, but in particular, the Ukrainians who worked in the embassy, to have their ambassador, a well-beloved ambassador, pulled out with no explanation. So I was... Then, so a friend of mine who was serving at the State Department asked me if I'd be willing to go back out. And uh, my first instinct, because of these funny messages and indications and kind of that something was going on there, I, I was reluctant to do this. Indeed, my wife thought this was a bad idea. And Does she, uh, does she say, I told you so a lot? Oh, of course. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yes. Even based on what she had said, her concerns, but also based on business about Giuliani and what had happened to Masha, 
when I finally did have a conversation with uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who wanted me to go out, I told him that I was not inclined to do it. I told him at the beginning of this interview, I was not inclined to go out because not of these other funny things, but because his boss, President Trump, I knew it was very clear, did not respect and value Ukraine. And my strong belief is that Ukrainian independence is important for the United States. It's important for our security. And if this were to be challenged, if the strong policy that had prevailed up until that point of support for this independent sovereign Ukraine, if that were to change, I told Secretary Pompeo, then I was not the one. I, you know, I, I was not inclined, inclined to do it. So there were other indications, David, later on. So I eventually, as, as you know, um, agreed to do it. Mike, uh, Secretary Pompeo gave me reason to believe that he, he did support this uh, uh, policy towards Ukraine and would endeavor to get President Trump to agree. And as we know, he failed on that. Um, uh, but nonetheless, on that, those assurances, uh, I went out. And as you detail in your book, which I recommend people <laughs> read, it's a great book, there were other things that were that were sending signals, uh, sending uh, sending up red flags about uh, about this administration. Well, as you go and and you get, you get there, you encounter something, and your description of it actually becomes kind of one of the recurring themes in the book. And frankly, I've done interviews ad nauseum uh, uh, since since the book launch, for which I'm grateful. But what, one of the things that comes up regularly is i i with less eloquence than you do describe what you discovered which is that there were sort of two governments operating in parallel there was an official government unofficial government and the rudy giuliani rumors and how he connected to gordon sondland and how he connected to some of these other people and how he connected to the president created what ultimately became an untenable situation for you. So how, how would you describe these these this kind of dueling dueling channels? I described it and still describe it as uh as the irregular channel and the regular channel. There's a regular channel of foreign policy, uh both chain of command and reporting that starts with the embassy and goes up through people in the State Department at various levels, uh just to the Secretary of State, over to the National Security Council. That's kind of the, and to the president, of course, uh, and that's kind of the regular channel. And then there are a lot of other inputs into making a foreign policy that supplement that uh, reporting channel. And that, that include, of course, the Congress. There's the Defense Department. There's the USAID Treasury. Uh, there's the American people, you know, journalists and uh, uh, non-governmental organizations that care about foreign policy that all go into what is our foreign policy. And that's, that's the institution. That's the institution that kind of that develops and executes foreign policy. And it does have this regular channel as its reporting. There was an irregular channel, as you as you just pointed out, that was independent of, in parallel with, but independent of, uh, and in some cases at odds with a regular channel. And the irregular channel, as you said, is uh, was uh, prompted and maybe even founded by uh, by Rudy Giuliani the president's lawyer, who had other interests, other things in mind that he wanted to get out of of the foreign policy establishment for this institution. And this other 
other channel uh, with other goals uh, had a political angle to it. That is, uh, you know, uh, as we know, Giuliani wanted the, the government in Ukraine to investigate a political rival of the president's. And so that, that generated phone calls, that generated meetings in Canada, it generated uh, preparations for, for a meeting that President Zelensky wanted with the president. And Giuliani and several people that you mentioned, David, uh, set up President Zelensky in a phone call in, pre- in preparation for this meeting in the Oval Office that President Zelensky wanted. Why did President Zelensky want this meeting in the, in the Oval Office so badly? Because the Russians were fighting, were, were invading, had invaded his country. Uh, Ukraine was at war with Russia in 2019. The Russians had invaded Ukraine in 2014, and they were still, this is five years later, there have been five years of war. President Zelensky, newly inaugurated, just in, not a lot, no previous government experience, knew one thing. In order to prevail, in order to win this war, he needed U.S. support. And he figured, and people around him told him, that he needed the U.S. government support. And he needed the president's support. So how was he going to get that? He ought to have a meeting with the president's in the president's office. And that would demonstrate not just to him and to the Ukrainian people, but demonstrate to the Russians that, that the United States supported him and Ukraine. So this is important to him. This is why he wanted this meeting. And uh, the Giuliani Irregular Channel uh, wanted to get something for this. And they wanted to get these investigations into the political rival. So that, that, was, uh, that was the origin of and the purpose, the you know, Ill, illegitimate purpose of this Irregular Channel. So at what point in you know, your stay in this job, did you go home to your wife or call her and say you were right? So there were a couple of indications along the line that led up to a, a my conclusion eventually. I was slow, as I mentioned to you. I didn't want to believe this, but there were some there were some odd occurrences that um, that suggested that all was not exactly right. I mentioned the ones before I even came out, but when I got there. There were a couple of phone calls in preparation for the phone call on January twenty on July twenty fifth uh, between the president President Zelensky and President Trump that were odd. Um, Gordon Sondland, Ambassador Sondland, the U.S. ambassador to NATO to, to the EU, was on a phone call. We were on a conversation and getting ready for this phone call, and he said, "Oh, we're going to delay the call to two hours." I said, that's, "That's fine. You know, this happens. Um, you know, I'll let my staff know. You can let." Your, he said, "No, no, no. We're not going to let staff know." I said, what? Uh, you know, of course we could. No, 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 right. We're, you just tune in two hours later. And then, uh, so I said, okay, all right. Uh, Gordon had been on this case for some time. Um, Gordon and uh, Gordon, Ambassador Sondland and Ambassador Volker, Kirk Volker, and Rick Perry, the Secretary of Energy, had been doing this work ever since they got back from the inauguration, Zelensky's inauguration, that took place the previous month. And they came back, they met Zelensky, of course, at the inauguration, came back and tried to tell President Trump what a what an asset this guy, what, what, how, how Ukraine was going to be going in the right direction now, and how this would be a good ally and we should support him. President Trump wasn't having it, but President Trump said to them, to these three, work with Rudy, you know, work with Rudy. And so that was, these were, these were signals. But David, in answer to your question, it wasn't until into July when 
and the, and the phone call, of course, had happened on the 25th of July, but was not made public, even to people on the inside, like me, you know, like the ambassador to Ukraine, until the, the transcript was released in September, well after that. But sometime in July, there was this bad signal, very, very, very bad signal, unmistakably bad signal. It even got through to me that said, the president of the United States is holding up security assistance to Ukraine. And again, Ukraine, at this point, been fighting the Russians for five years at a bloody battle that had taken 14,000 Ukrainian lives in, that five, in those five years. So it was a serious war. And we, rightly, Americans in the United States and NATO, other NATO nations, were providing weapons and training to the Ukrainians to help them fight the Russians and to, and to succeed. And the signal, the bad signal that finally got through to me was um, the president cut off put on pause, put on hold uh, this security assistance. No one could figure this out. It was it was inexplicable. It was also illegal. It was illegal. Yeah, that's right. It was illegal because the Congress had appropriated these funds for that purpose, exactly that purpose to support the Ukrainians. So it's not in the president's authority to go against the law of the land that, that was signed in law that, that said these monies, this assistance, these weapons should go, need to go, should, shall go to the Ukrainians. Um, and it, we're talking about nearly $400 million of serious money uh, and serious support for the Ukrainians. And that was held up. And that was that was a, a signal, as you say, illegally held up. And there were other people in the government, some of whom you talk to and, and you, you reference in the book, who, like many of us, could not understand what was going on and did their best to try to put this back on track. Yeah, and to some extent it worked. You know, when Vindman comes out of the meeting on the 25th and he goes into a meeting with the NSC lawyer and his brother and says, hey, this is, you know, this is not cool. And the lawyer writes it all down and that sets something in motion. And meanwhile, the whistleblower does the same thing. It ultimately ends up with the Congress. It becomes public. And within a couple of weeks of that, the money's released. So in that sense, that's working. The other sense, of course, an impeachment gets kicked off where you and other people testify, but ultimately the Senate doesn't hold anybody accountable. Somewhere in there, I'm I mean, aware we talk about it in the book, but you sort of hit the end of the rope. You, you, know, you sort of say, I believe you say in the book, you tell your wife, we're canceling this trip that we have planned and we're we're going to handle this a different way. But I don't mean to make light of it because it, it raises another issue. So I talk about what happened to you. But the other issue, and again, it's one that comes up with many, many people in this book, and I think is one of the big questions that sort of hovered over the Trump administration and frankly hovers over many administrations. And that is when is enough too much? When do you draw the line? What is the right moment for an official who's in the government seeking to serve the country, seeking to uphold their oath, feeling that they can do some good on the inside? At, at what moment do you say, no, this can't go on? How do you make that decision? Yeah. And as you say, a lot of people faced that and made the decision at one point or another um, and and resigned. And as we've talked, I, I 
had indicated to my boss, you know, Secretary Pompeo, that if I went out and the policy changed and the support failed, then I would have to resign. And as you say, I uh, was serious about, I was about to, about to resign to get to the point that you just described. And, and yeah, my, my wife and two kids were uh, planning to visit um, uh, in, me in Kiev in, in uh, October. This is in late August that this all happened, but they, they were making plans and buying tickets. And this guy that said, I can't tell you why I'm going to say this. I can't tell you any more details, but if you're buying tickets, be sure they're refundable because I may not be here. And I, what I had in mind, of course, was that I might have to resign. And because I get to the point, that, and your question's a good one, for me, and I can answer for me, when it was clear that, and again, I was slow to pick this up, but when it was finally clear in late August what the game was, and the game was put pressure on Zelensky, not just for this meeting in the Oval Office that Zelensky wanted. I mean, he, he wanted that, but that was one source of leverage. But but it became clear that this unexplained pause, hold on security assistance was to put pressure on Zelensky to do the same thing. That is, these investigations. When that became clear, I, I couldn't be a part of that. I couldn't be a part of that. As you said, it's illegal, but it also just violated our U.S. Commitment to this ally partner. It uh, contradicted all of our policies. This institution of foreign policy that I described earlier that is that that forms and executes foreign policy, that it had a policy, and this was counter to that. And so it was it was illegal, it was counter to the policy, it was it was bad for the United States, it was bad for our own interests. And um, I had done everything I could. I had done everything that I could to let it be known back to Washington that this is a mistake. We need to fix this. And when it looked like it was not going to be fixed, I was ready to resign. So I I think that was the point for me um, where uh, that it it crossed the line. It was contrary, it was detrimental to the United States interest and and policy and law, and I I couldn't buy it. And you'd also done, you know, uh, several people that I, I talked to in the book went to mentors and others. Several, a couple of them went to Steve Hadley, for example, and he said, "Look, you got to know what your red line is." And you had actually done this, you know, you you established the red line with Pompeo before accepting the job, right? And you know, as people look at this, you know, there are a lot of reasons I think to review these stories, and some of them have to do with the guardrail that exists in the government in terms of people who serve the law and who serve the Constitution rather than any individual. Some of them have to do with how do you operate in the policy environment generally, and how do you prepare for that? Because these things come up a lot. And I think the, the, way that, the, the way that you've addressed it is as clean and clear-cut a way as I encountered in the course of the book. Before we go, and we only have a few minutes, I can't help but ask a question that's more tied to what's going on today. Because, you know, there you were in 2019, there we all were in 2019, we were looking at this. Ukraine was an issue that was of interest, but it was not a central issue of the, in the United States and central to U.S. foreign policy. The aid involved, $191 million, was a lot of money. 
but it's not $40 billion. It's not the kind of money that we're dealing with now. Russia, obviously, in February of this year, February 24th of this year, changed the calculus a lot. And it must change the way you look back on this period, change the way you look back on how we treated Zelensky, the message Trump was sending, not just to Zelensky, but to Putin. And the message that Putin and Zelensky must be getting as they face the prospect of a return of Trump or Trumpists. And they see, you know, I mean, I just saw a poll a moment ago that showed that in February of this year, March of this year, eight or nine percent of Republicans felt the U.S. was doing too much for Ukraine. And it's now about 50 percent. So some, you know, we're all of a sudden getting back to this being a partisan issue. And I, and I just as you look back, given everything that's changed, do, do, do you feel this, this period was actually maybe worse than we thought it was, you know, in terms of its implication? You know, I've given this thought too. And I, and I think to, to some degree, yes. And you and you mentioned it, David. One of the messages, well, there was a message to Zelensky from from Trump, um, which was confusing and was contradictory and was uncomfortable for all the reasons that that we that we've talked about. It was also a message to Putin, and and that could have uh, had implications. Or Putin may have thought, based on that and based on all the things that have happened since then, that the Americans are just as cynical as he is. And, and the Americans don't really have principles and the Americans don't really you know, support Ukraine. Um, you know, look what he, Putin could have thought, look what uh, Trump was willing to do. And, and that could have led Putin, along with other things that happened, you know, we know about Afghanistan and, and the new president, that, that, could have, that could have indicated to Putin that there was a possibility that he could get away with an, a large invasion of Ukraine, and that neither this new president, President Biden, who had had a difficult time in Afghanistan, was bloodied uh, uh, politically, certainly by by uh, that experience, and maybe even Putin could have even thought that you know the American people, that, you know, they, uh, they're they're not up for a fight, and he could have that could have contributed to Putin's miscalculation. I mean. They, Putin made a big mistake on the 24th of February this year, as you just said, by invading Ukraine. And he's paying for it now. But the seats could have been in there for some time. The seats clearly were. I mean, we, we know that Putin for a long time has looked for ways to dominate, absorb, wipe out Ukraine. And uh, so, so this was there. And this, could have, this was another indication that he could succeed. Certainly was, and it's important to have that context. I, it's also, I think, important for people to have the insight into what worked and what didn't work, and where the guardrails were during the Trump years, um, because they could be recreated. He could come back because there is a move afoot to make it easier to get rid of people who are career foreign service, career intelligence, career military, career civil servants, um, because they 
aren't loyal to a man or a party, but instead to the country. And that move is likely to take place whether Trump is the next GOP candidate or not. And I think it's therefore important to understand those things. That's why I wrote the book. But the way I wrote the book was to go and talk to people who had a unique perspective and a valuable perspective. And there are very, very few people that I encountered in doing this book or that I've encountered in my time in Washington who are better examples of the best of public servants than Bill Taylor. And so I, I am incredibly grateful that you took the time to talk with me during the book. I'm incredibly grateful that you took the time now uh, and for all of your service. And uh, I hope people read the book because they can hear more from you there. And uh, thank you. Thank you for joining me today. David, thank you. Thank you. Oh, very, very kind. And for writing this book, uh, because you make the big point uh, beyond me and, and in all of your that are right here. Um, uh, all of your interviews, these are amazing people, uh, President Company excluded, but you, the people that you've talked about there are amazing people. And I learning more about them in your book um, inspired me. So thanks for doing that. Thank you, Bill. Thanks to everybody for joining us. We'll have another one of these uh, in this mini series for the next two weeks. So keep coming back. And, you know, if you get so inclined from listening to all this stuff and you want to go buy the book, hey, do that. Thanks a lot. And uh, thank you, Bill. Bye-bye.